Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today, we'll be discussing The Caning of Charles Sumner, Assault and Response in the Halls of Congress. On May 22, 1856, Representative Preston Brooks crossed the halls of Congress and then brutally assaulted Senator Charles Sumner. This is usually referred to as the caning of Charles Sumner. Canings are brutal attacks with, well, a cane or rod, but that is still a less severe, overly clinical word than warranted here. No, Brooks beat Sumner close to death in an uncontrolled fit of rage. Today, we will explore the events that led up to this attack, the people involved, and the fallout. This one specific moment of national history is in fact bound up tightly with events in Kansas and the rising Republican Party. Now, before moving on, understand that we are not yet going to discuss deeply the formation of the Republicans, but we are getting there. The politics of Kansas alone was a, such a complex topic that we necessarily placed the political parties to the side for now, but I will bring them up in this episode when they become important. Charles Sumner was born in 1811, Massachusetts, where he lived most of his life. His father, also named Charles, strongly opposed slavery, not that unusual in the state of Massachusetts. They went beyond that, however, by opposing many of the everyday racist laws and customs that most Americans accepted as normal. Even in Boston, that pushed some social boundaries. But even so, the Sumner family was widely respected, and Charles Sumner had an excellent start in life. As with many youths, it appears that young Charles Sumner learned his father's principles very well. Jumping ahead a few years, the boy became a man, studied at Harvard, toured Europe, and then returned home. He practiced law and even taught at Harvard himself. At this time, he distinguished himself also as a vigorous orator and was much in demand. His speeches weren't necessarily about politics or slavery. In fact, he would deliver a speech on just about any subject necessary for the occasion. But after the annexation of Texas, he began to take a much more deliberate and active role in the anti-slavery movement and in politics. Of course, you may recall that annexation itself had become a pretty significant issue in its day, and was widely seen among anti-slavery groups as intended to expand and empower slavery. Although growing in importance, it does not necessarily mean that Charles Sumner was loved or even liked. Respected, yes. But Charles Sumner had a difficult personality. Even his siblings rarely seemed to crack through his emotional barriers. He had a very intellectual understanding of the world and the people in it. For him, the cause was all important, human feelings secondary. He liked the world of ideas, and he was most comfortable within them. Now note, this does not mean that he lacked any sense of adventure. When in Europe, he traveled extensively and studied widely, and far from an isolated academic, Sumner had a tall, strong build. Yet oddly, for a man with such an interest in politics, Sumner entirely lacked any kind of flexibility to maneuver. No one questioned his commitment to principles. They did at times question his judgment in pursuing them. Sumner appeared to actively enjoy making enemies, and his rhetoric had a bad habit of turning both ugly and personal. When Sumner wanted to hurt somebody, he could, and did, spill poison straight from his pen. One specific example of this concerns Daniel Webster. Although a staunch anti-slavery man, 
Webster supported the Compromise of 1850, including the not-yet-infamous Fugitive Slave Act. Of course, Webster, who was not too far from death, did so in the hope and belief that it might ease sectional tensions and to become a final service to the United States. Sumner, however, privately wrote that he now compared Webster to Judas Iscariot or Benedict Arnold, and reported his deep pleasure in seeing the old man called out. It is true that Webster supported a law which gave some power to slavery. But it is also true that he did so in the honest faith that it ultimately furthered human liberty, which Charles Sumner could never quite understand. Maybe Webster was right, or maybe he was wrong, but Charles Sumner just couldn't comprehend the idea of compromise, even to gain a strategic victory, such as the admission of California as a free state. Not surprisingly, Sumner got involved with the Free Soil Party early. Just as he felt disappointed by Sumner, he had earlier grown disappointed with the Whigs. Martin Van Buren's Free Soil Party adopted a much tougher tone on slavery. And of course, the Whigs at the time were putting up the rough-hewn, slave-owning Southerner Taylor for the presidency. Ironically, the failure of the Free Soil Party in the 1848 election put Sumner himself on the path to great success. You see, the Whig Party remained very strong in Massachusetts, but as it turned out, it was not strong enough. Sufficient abolition-minded voters joined the Free Soil Party in order to give it some political leverage which they did by allying with the Democrats of all people. Now, the combined force managed to win both the governorship and the legislature. Part of the Free Soil Party's demands, however, was that Sumner be made senator. Remember that in this era, the senators were selected by state legislatures and not popular voting. This, not surprisingly, created the immense opportunity of a lifetime for Sumner. He was too radical for the Whigs and lacked the common touch necessary for election as a representative, like Daniel Webster had been. The Senate, though, was an excellent arena for his speech-making prowess. Besides, he undoubtedly delighted in the opportunity to bring his fury against slavery right into the den of slaveholders. The only problem lay in the fact that Sumner was also too radical, or maybe too obnoxious and disliked, for the Democrats either. And this is where a double irony occurred. The Fugitive Slave Act had its effect, and the events that we've recounted of Thomas Sims' escape and recapture occurred in Boston. All the considerable legal acumen of Boston's abolitionists failed to free Sims, and then President Fillmore had little interest in their protests. But it changed the conversation in Boston, a fact which abolitionists entirely realized and made the most of. Sims left Boston Harbor in chains on April 13th of 1851, and quickly thereafter, Democrats then dropped their opposition to Sumner and joined with the Free Soil Party to name Sumner as senator on April 24th. It had not been an easy political battle, but Mr. Sumner was going to Washington. Once there, Senator Sumner surprised precisely nobody by delivering as many diatribes against slavery as possible, which was not as easy as it sounds. Quite a few senators had no great desire to hear him on any topic, let alone slavery, and they blocked him from taking the floor. However, Sumner figured out a way to take the floor by proposing a budgetary amendment. Even better, his amendment allowed him to directly target the Fugitive Slave Act, both on moral and material grounds. He won little support, but Sumner accomplished something that hot late summer day. He stood up in Congress and told it to stop trying to impose slavery where it was not wanted. 
After several years in the Senate, however, it seemed that Sumner had accomplished little more. You know when people say history repeats? Well, it did for Massachusetts, and it did for Sumner. Even as the debate over Kansas-Nebraska heated up, with the tiny Free Soil Party having little impact, a slave named Anthony Burns contrived to escape bondage. He slipped aboard a ship in Virginia, and with the aid of a friend, managed to stay hidden all the way to Boston. Once free, he set about working, but foolishly sent a letter with his location to his brother, still enslaved in Virginia. When Burns' legal master discovered the letter, he dispatched a slave hunter post-haste. In late May 1824, the latter located and arrested Burns. To say this set off a firestorm would be underselling matters. This was exactly the kind of interference Massachusetts objected to, carried out at home. Bizarrely, the proceedings to remand Burns to slavery occurred so quietly, no one noticed, until a man named Richard Dana Jr. happened to buy. When he noticed the events, he immediately offered his help to Burns. This he provided most effectively, completely demolishing much of the evidence against the man and at least buying some time. It also led to the public exposure of the entire Sari affair, and quite frankly, the people of Boston had about as much sympathy for slave hunters and slave masters as they did for cockroaches. On the other hand, Richard Dana Jr. won broad public support for Burns, and he also probably suborned enough perjury to give most lawyers two or three heart attacks. In the end, the judge ruled, and for the record accurately, that Burns was indeed a slave. Yet that wasn't the whole story. Abolitionists in Boston rallied support, and they protested ferociously and publicly. To ensure that none of them helped Burns escape, soldiers took the provocative step of chaining shut the doors of the courthouse, the symbolism of which did not go unnoticed. In fact, some of those opposed to the Burns decision attempted to hack down the doors of the courthouse with axes, which is usually called a riot. The attempt was doomed, but it also wasn't a riot. Much like the Boston Tea Party 80 years earlier, it was a deliberate and prearranged attempt, not chaotic mob violence. Though several men went to jail and were subsequently tried, they emerged as heroes instead of prisoners. The net effect of all this was to propel Boston, and Massachusetts generally, into the most radical side of abolition politics. At great cost, in financial terms and otherwise, the government upheld the law, but it also knocked the teeth out of the compromised position on slavery. Many of the Boston elite had followed Daniel Webster's views previously. They believed in the law, even if they didn't like it. Many had friends in the South, and wanted to embrace compromise or moral persuasion instead of agitation. No longer. As wealthy merchant Amos Lawrence wrote afterwards, We went to bed one night, old-fashioned, conservative, compromise union Whigs, and waked up stark mad abolitionists. You may have guessed that Amos Lawrence became linked with Lawrence, Kansas. If so, you guessed right. Lawrence, among others, jumped on board, forming the New England Emigrant Aid Company. He generously supported it. So, as a show of appreciation, one of the first groups of settlers in Kansas named their town after him. Meanwhile, Charles Sumner wasn't on the scene. But not surprisingly, he took full advantage to oppose Kansas-Nebraska at every turn, delivering oratory explaining, in excruciating detail, the outrages that earned his wrath. 
and he named names, singling out Senators Mason of Virginia and Andrew P. Butler of South Carolina as particular targets. But Sumner was no longer alone. Frankly, before 1854 had even ended, Kansas-Nebraska became almost the sole political issue for much of the country. It also led directly to the founding of the Republican Party, and Sumner joined that same year. In fact, his Free Soil Party effectively dissolved itself in 1854 to merge with the swelling Republican ranks en masse. The Republicans certainly did not immediately take power, yet they grew sufficiently quickly that Sumner suddenly found himself less a political outcast and more a rising star. He now possessed, almost for the first time in his life, a sizable cohort of political allies and a real national audience. This brings us to Preston Brooks, and quite frankly, a greater contrast can hardly be imagined. Brooks came from Edgefield County, a region of South Carolina roughly between Columbia and Augusta. Dominated by wealthy planters, most of its residents were in fact African-American slaves. Brooks himself, not surprisingly, ran a plantation there called Leeside, and yes, he absolutely owned slaves. Though far from the wealthiest of planters, he still represented the elite. In fact, his cousin, Andrew P. Butler, would go on to become a senator, and in fact happened to sit next to Charles Sumner. When the Mexican-American War broke out, or perhaps more accurately, when President Polk started it, Brooks helped recruit and lead a militia company. Yet he quickly became deathly ill of typhoid fever in Mexico, and he returned home to recover his strength before having a chance to fight. There was no great shame in that, but Brooks felt a deep sense of humiliation over losing his chance at glory. At the first opportunity, he rushed back to Mexico, but now too late to participate in any battles. He remained sensitive to this for the rest of his life, partly also because he lost a brother and a cousin. The Palmetto Regiment, what he would have served in, in fact, earned distinction in the Scott Campaign all the way to Mexico City, and all without Brooks. Having failed to gain military glory, Brooks then sought political success. This he did, becoming representative of his home district. Unlike Sumner, Brooks put people at ease with gentlemanly manner, and he seemed to lack strong ideological convictions. Arguably, Brooks lacked political principles as such. He was loyal to his state and his voters, not an abstract ideal. In practice, of course, this meant he was loyal to the slave economy. Still, in Washington he was able to make friends even with those who had deeply opposing values. Far from a fire-eating secessionist, Brooks usually adopted a moderate, conservative tone. When he did speak, he did take the same kind of pro-slavery stances that any other South Carolina politician would in this day, but he didn't really distinguish himself as exceptional in that ways. Now, when Kansas-Nebraska came before the House of Representatives, Preston Brooks naturally spoke firmly in favor. Were his arguments racist? Yes. Were they pro-slavery? Yes, that too. Yet they were hardly radical in 1854, nor was Brooks entirely wrong in the way that he pointed out deep racism in the North and reliance on the products of slavery in the free states. Instead, Brooks crafted a somewhat conciliatory message that pointed out the hypocrisy of many abolitionists, but avoided emotional punches. Brooks delivered his message in narrowly material terms instead of ideological ones. 
Not surprisingly, Preston Brooks found a certain level of fellowship across the political and ideological divide. Remaining predominantly quiet on most issues and following the party line, he spent time in Washington cheerfully. He could enjoy the life of a gentleman in the city and style with the support of his plantation's wealth. Yet in Washington, months of struggle and debate and horrifically bad press deeply wounded the Democrats in general and the Pierce administration in particular. It also brought out the most aggressive and vigorous attacks Charles Sumner could write and deliver. As 1855 gave way to 1856, and the news from Kansas grew worse and steadily worse still, he planned to deliver the speech of his life. The cause of freedom deserved no less. Sumner took the floor of the Senate on May 19th of 1856, and continued his Crime Against Kansas speech the next day. The man goes on to some rather excessive rhetorical heights the entire way. Given the ugly realities of slavery and the uglier reality of the attempts to impose it, he was more or less right. Yet it was also a somewhat dangerous speech, perhaps ill-advised, and designed to make enemies and not win over more friends. Unfortunately, in this case, Sumner made one more enemy than he could afford. In his speech, Sumner made exceptionally personal attacks against Senator Andrew P. Butler of South Carolina, in particular having the bad grace to mock at length Butler's physical infirmity after a recent stroke. That will become unfortunately ironic in his near future. But the speech goes much further than just mocking a physical injury. Here is just a tiny slice of the rhetoric on display, selected from the very long speech. Sir, the Nebraska bill was in every respect a swindle. It was a swindle by the south of the north. It was, one the part of those who had already completely enjoyed their share of the Missouri Compromise, a swindle of these whose share was yet absolutely untouched. Urged as a bill of peace, it was a swindle of the whole country. Urged as sanctioning popular sovereignty, it was a swindle of the asserted rights of slave masters. It was a swindle of a great cause, early espoused by Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson, surrounded by the best fathers of the Republic. Sir, it was a swindle of God-given inalienable rights. Then was conceived the consummation of the crime against Kansas. What could not be accomplished peaceably was to be accomplished forcibly. The reptile monster that could not be quietly and securely hatched there was to be pushed full-grown into the territory. All efforts were now given to the dismal work of forcing slavery on free soil. In flagrant derogation of the very popular sovereignty whose name helped to impose this bill upon the country, the atrocious object was now distinctly avowed, and the avowal has been followed by the act. Slavery has been forcibly introduced into Kansas, and placed under the formal safeguards of pretended law. How this was done belongs the argument. The senator from South Carolina has read many books of chivalry, and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot slavery. For her, his tongue is always profuse in words. 
On that last point, Sumner targeted Senator Andrew P. Butler, which you probably guessed. Many Southerners found that speech infuriating, and Sumner successfully infuriated Preston Brooks to rash madness. After stewing it over for a day, Brooks' fury reached apoplectic heights. Brooks at first planned to challenge Sumner to a duel, but quickly decided that Sumner wasn't enough of a gentleman for such an honorable fight. In Brooks' view, Sumner really deserved a good thrashing. Also, Sumner was actually physically quite imposing, whereas Brooks had no great prowess. In Brooks' mind, Sumner really should have no right to retaliate when an upright gentleman delivered a good what-for to a low-class reprobate. Brooks' aim was no great secret to his closest friends, and he went back and forth over the issue privately with them. Still, he went on with his plans. On May 22nd, after the day's legislative work had been completed, Brooks walked over from the House of Representatives and approached Sumner. They did not know each other personally, and Sumner could not recognize Brooks. He was, in any case, nearsighted and writing at his desk at the moment. Brooks reportedly said, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Sumner evidently looked up, momentarily puzzled, only to receive the impact of the heavy, gold-tipped gutta-perch cane on his head. Sumner struggled to free himself from his desk, while Brooks brought his cane down again and again, only to find that his long legs were trapped under the desk itself bolted to the floor. Unable to use any agility while being beaten over the head and over again, Sumner finally tore the desk itself free from the floor, only to stumble and collapse. Preston Brooks continued his assault until the cane itself broke. Then he took the gold-tip head and continued to smash Sumner with that alone. Other senators attempted to stop Preston Brooks and aid Sumner, but two other Southern representatives had walked over with Brooks. They held everyone back, Representative Lawrence Keat brandishing a loaded gun to do so. Finally, a couple other representatives stopped Brooks' attack, and he left quietly. Sumner had been beaten unconscious, but he soon awoke and managed to stumble home with aid. Though Sumner limped away afterward, he needed medical attention and did not return to Congress. He most likely sustained a severe concussion, and his wounds became infected. Physical recovery took months, and the regrettable state of contemporary medicine made his suffering worse and actively hindered his healing. Mentally, he did not entirely recover his energy for years. Though he neither lost his passion for the cause nor his firmness of principle, Sumner only slowly regained the determined energy to act. He may have had a traumatic brain injury of some sort, um, it's hard to say. But he certainly encountered difficulties concentrating and using his considerable and prodigious intellect productively. It's hard to even conceive of this brand of violence occurring on the floor of Congress today, at least if committed by congressmen, I speak these words in the year 2022. Despite all the rising tensions of 1856, it was no different. Brooks' act shocked the nation. Unfortunately, the response took two forms. In the more or less anti-slavery or free-soil states, the assault on Sumner stunned everyone. Northern Democrats were astounded by the barbarity of it, even down in the border states. 
Many Whigs who previously resisted joining the nascent Republican Party promptly started down that path. While abolitionists held in their hand basically the greatest propaganda coup of the century. In that flurry of blows, Preston Brooks seemingly proved every last accusation they had ever made about the slave empire. And in the immediate aftermath, Brooks found himself turned into the national symbol of pure evil in virtually every corner of the North, and he probably deserved every last vilification. A slave owner, seemingly in the defense of slavery, publicly and cruelly beaten opposition legislator in the place where all laws were decided. The attack was by design vicious and warranted and one-sided. Many Northerners might at least have understood had Brooks waited until Sumner left the capital and then delivered a few blows. Had Brooks stood his ground and dared Sumner to retaliate, even if he lost, he might have at least earned a measure of public respect for acting in a manner perceived as manful. But he did not. Instead, Brooks struck as an assassin, a point that Southerners seemed not to realize. Instead, newspaper editors across the South lionized Brooks and thanked him for striking back against the hated abolitionist foe. Brooks bragged that the fragments of the stick were begged for as sacred relics, and he did not exaggerate in the least. Southern congressmen put some bits of it into lockets and wore them around their necks. Had Southern elites condemned rather than cheered the assault, the caning might not have attracted a legion of new supporters for Sumner or the Republicans. Although Democrats ensured that Brooks faced no more than the feeblest slap on the wrist, he resigned his seat anyway. Returning home to South Carolina amid crowds and cheers and speeches, he easily won re-election. He now had the public adulation of many Southern legislators, no longer a low-profile backbencher. Preston Brooks had defiantly stood up for Southern rights and beaten them from the body of his enemy after all. Slightly complicating this narrative is the possibility that Brooks may have never intended the attack as having anything to do with slavery or Southern rights at all, except in how Sumner's crime against Kansas speech impacted his family. Brooks barely talked about Southern rights or anything like it when discussing the matter before the attack. Even right when talking to Sumner, he only mentioned the personal and verbal insults delivered to his cousin, Senator Butler, and the honor of his state. Let me clearly state that the following is a personal perspective, so take it for what it is worth. People can legitimately see the evidence differently. My view is that, while the attack on Sumner was a result of pro-slavery culture, I don't think Brooks ever intended it as a blow for slavery. In his eyes, this was a gentleman demanding satisfaction from a lout who insulted him. This was certainly not the first time Brooks defended his honor. Back in 1840, he fought a duel with Louis Wigfall, who would later became a prominent Texas secessionist, and took a permanent injury for his trouble. Although duels had fallen out of fashion, Defending one's honor was still an important element of the life of a Southern gentleman, and honestly even in the North sometimes. When the legion of editors, politicians, and opinion leaders lauded Brooks, they implicitly and sometimes explicitly linked Southern honor and slavery together. This was an exceptionally dangerous idea to spread for several reasons. First, it meant that any opposition to slavery on any grounds inherently justified a violent response. Second, 
honor culture by nature tended to overreact to real or perceived slights. Third, it effectively reduced all Southern culture to just slavery. Nothing else, after all, received the dubious benefit of this idea. Southern hospitality, literature, music, arts, food, nothing seemed to have any value or validity compared to slavery in the eyes of the very men charged with explaining, growing, and developing their civilization. When the Richmond Enquirer declared in the wake of the Keening that the vulgar abolitionists must be lashed into submission, they vented their feelings. But they also implicitly threatened to treat all free men as slaves. Southern leaders also failed to consider where all of this would inevitably lead. If slavery was everything for them, then necessarily they would try to spread it everywhere. Resistance to slavery in Kansas couldn't merely be settlers who wanted to farm in peace. In their eyes, it must be the result of some kind of conspiracy. Any loss was some conspiracy against them. And slavery wasn't a necessary evil anymore. No, sir, they wouldn't hear of that kind of talk. It was a positive good and the embodiment of their rights in totality. Such was Southern civilization in the minds of Southern governors, senators, representatives, and planters alike. For Preston Brooks, the gloomy hand of fate followed seeming triumph. He would not return to Congress. A seemingly trivial illness took him to the grave in 1857, all but forgotten except for his one singular act on the national stage. Brooks suddenly collapsed one evening in a Washington hotel and died minutes later clawing at his throat. He spent much of his last year with the adoration of Southern elites, but also a great deal of shame. He perhaps had the good grace to think better of his actions than most, and seemed distraught at the infamy attached to his name. Brooks expressed little hate for Sumner, or even abolitionists thereafter. He never hoped to become the national brute or thug. For that matter, the opinion of many abolitionists or free soilers in Washington agreed. Most seemed to think that Brooks had been used as a disposable weapon by more venomously pro-slavery men. They considered him a poor fool used and discarded, not a villain. In Massachusetts, Sumner would be re-elected, basically without opposition. Yet he did not actually retake his seat in reality until the eve of the Civil War itself. He will have many parts to play in that conflict and in Reconstruction thereafter. And that's all for this episode. Next time, we're going to discuss the Know-Nothing Party, also called the American Party, as well as the impact of immigration on American politics. And after that, we are finally going to discuss the long-awaited rise of the Republicans. So please stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast.